0: You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best-informed, most-read website focusing on the green energy transition, and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment, and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to the Switched On Australia podcast, I'm Anne Delaney, speaking to you from a Rockwell country in northern New South Wales. Thanks for joining me. Getting a home energy efficiency assessment is a bit like giving your house a health checkup. It can save you money on energy bills, identify where energy is being wasted or used inefficiently and basically just make your home more comfortable. Energy efficiency assessments look at the totality of energy used in a home, and they can actively contribute to the journey towards net zero emissions. And although electrification is crucial to energy efficiency, not all energy efficiency measures require expensive electric appliances or upgrades. There are plenty of efficiency modifications for people on a budget. Lucinda Flynn is a home energy efficiency assessor working in Melbourne who has conducted hundreds of energy assessments that have saved householders thousands of dollars. She primarily uses an assessment tool called the Residential Efficiency Scorecard. This is a government accredited system which provides an Energy Star rating certificate for your home, much like your fridge gets a star rating. And I started my discussion with Lucinda by asking her who can most benefit from an energy efficiency assessment?
1: Energy efficiency is such a great opportunity for almost everybody. Um, if you look at the, the scorecard, a residential efficiency tool that I use, the Victorian average rating out of 10 is 3, which indicates how poor most of our existing houses are mm-hmm. in terms of energy efficiency. I mean, my goal is to identify a whole lot of upgrade opportunities and then demonstrate using the scorecard modelling how people can get to a 10 star home, which means that they are generating more dollar value of energy than they use in the year. And so if you can imagine doing that with every house and making that an achievable goal, it's got incredible um, possibilities.
0: So tell me what a, a three-star house looks like. And, and looking at some of the houses that you've actually been in, walk me through some of those houses that would, would rate quite lowly.
1: Sure, um look, every house is different, so it's, it's, uh, it's a combination of the, the way it's constructed and the appliances that are in use. But in general, you could say it might be a 70s or 80s home that has a bunch of drafts, whether they're you know built into the structure as was common in years by, or uh, mm. just that have been are there because of poor construction. it's probably got gas ducted heating. That's the most common sort of heating that we see, not not particularly efficient. And the insulation is probably fairly minimal, possibly no insulation in the walls. That's uh, pretty much anything before the 90s has no insulation in the walls. Yeah, and a, and a gas storage hot water system. So that'd be a typical three-star house.
0: And, and in comparison, what would you like those houses to become? <laughs>
1: Well, when I model, um, I mean, I've I've looked at hundreds of houses and I can almost always get them to 10 star with a series of upgrades Mm. that includes improvements to their building shell or envelope, as well as improvements to the main fixed appliances and, of course, adding solar generation on the roof. That's a critical part of it. The highest star rating that is possible without solar PV on the roof is eight stars. So to get to 10 Yeah, you need it. You need
0: it. I I mean, one of the main issues we've got is is making the transition for existing houses. You know, it Mm. it, it is just easier if you're building a new house to be much more cognizant of making them energy efficient, although we have plenty of houses which are still <laughs> not, not particularly energy efficient. Yeah. I mean, how, how confident, given the number of houses that we have to upgrade in order mm. to make this transition, in order for us to electrify and to use this electricity efficiently. How, how hopeful mm. are you that we can do this, given that we, if, as you say, every house is individual and everybody's circumstances are slightly different.
1: Mm. I'm very confident because, uh, to be honest, older houses are often easier to improve than newer houses uh, because they're smaller, they they are already built in a way that includes zoning of different areas, Mm. which means that you can reduce your heating and cooling to the zones that you're actually using rather than the new Mm. um, standard, which is whole of house heating. So I I don't think that having an old house is any barrier at all to making it really efficient.
0: Right. That's interesting because I mean, so
1: much of modern housing is, is open plan, isn't it? It is, and to me, I mean, your heating cost is directly related to how much space you are heating. So if you're heating an entire house, it's just always going to be a lot more expensive than if you're able to heat and cool smaller areas. Mm. And and that's the one of the there's two big drawbacks, well there's three big drawbacks as I see it in newer builds. One is that they're way bigger. Two is that they usually have ducted heating. And the third is that they're often two storey and those two storeys are not separated. So often you'll have the bottom floor will be big open plan area connected to a stairwell with the upstairs sort of landing open area. And that in itself is just such a massive amount of air to be conditioning Mm. that it's, it's hard. It's hard to work out how to reduce energy costs in a house like that because it's just not designed to make that easy.
0: That's really interesting because because there is so much focus now on what are we going to do with existing houses. It's almost mm. like you know we, we think that we don't have to worry so much about new houses, especially in states like Victoria and and uh, Canberra for instance, because you know they won't be in the future connected to gas, which obviously assists with energy upgrades and electrification. Do you think there is enough focus in that case? On, on new builds?
1: No, not at all. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would take an old build over a new build any day if it was about efficiency. I think there's a fantastic opportunity to build them in an energy-efficient way, but I just don't think it's done. Yes. Not the ones I see anyway.
0: And and, and is that because the, the developers who are in the business are, are cutting costs all the time? Uh,
1: I think it's... I heard an ad on the radio the other day and it was a young boy saying, you know, making this comment, oh, wow, I never knew we'd be able to afford a house this big. And that was the selling feature right. of that new build. And I thought, well, that that just, that sums it up. It's what people want is the biggest house they can possibly get. If they've got an extra TV room and a billiards room and a, you know, parents lounge, the that's all good. Whereas that's the opposite of energy efficiency because Mm. you've got all that space you then got to make comfortable
0: so Lucinda tell me you go into somebody's house tell me Mm. tell me what you do and exactly what you assess and what advice you end up giving people just talk me
1: through that so the first thing we do is sit down at the kitchen table and just talk about the house and the people that live there Um, every house and the occupants of it are completely different. So I would start by finding out more about the people that live there and what they want and how they use the house, and then look at the house in its construction and the main fixed appliances, and then work out the things that are going to have the best effect for them. And it can be simple things like zoning so that they're only heating and cooling some smaller areas. It can be through upgrades to appliances. Sometimes it's just helping them know which of their existing appliances to use. They may have, for example, a, a gas-ducted heating system but an air conditioner in one room, mm. but they may not realise that they're better off using that air conditioner rather than the gas-ducted heating system.
0: Do you find that as a common issue, that people aren't aware yeah. of that? Mm.
1: Yeah. I've had many people go in and I say, you know, what are your heating and cooling? And they say, well, we've got gas ducted heating and we've got this air conditioner, but it's okay because we only use it on really hot days (laughs) Um, because they're sort of reassuring me that they're not using this terribly energy inefficient appliance, which is a hangover from when they weren't that Mm -hmm. energy efficient. So, yeah, it's very common that people are not aware that, that that appliance does heat and it does it really well.
0: It's interesting that you say that you sit down at the kitchen table. I find that quite fascinating. Uh, I mean, it it also underlines the the individualised nature of these conversations and how important that individualised, tailored advice is as opposed to generalised information about electrification or energy efficiency.
1: Yes, absolutely. Actually, electrification is a good example of that. People will often say, I want to get off gas, where should I start? Then it goes back to that knowing the customer. If not burning gas inside is a really high motivation for them, then replacing a gas cooktop with an induction cooktop is a high priority. Whereas if somebody's main motivation is reducing their gas use, the highest priority will be moving away from gas-ducted heating to reverse cycle heating because mm. that's our biggest cost. Everyone can't do everything. The goal is that we go to electric mm. reverse cycle heating and cooling, induction cooktop and heat pump hot water system. Mm. That's the goal. But if you've just installed a brand new, you know, yesterday I saw a house that had a evacuated tube solar hot water system with a gas boost that wasn't that old, that's a really efficient system still. And if they just want to turn off gas then yes they can replace it but if they if their budget is limited then there are other things they're way better off doing first and so yes i I guess i'm just Mm. agreeing that it's a very personalized thing and that's so important there's no such thing as this is right for everybody.
0: Yes. But but also what you're saying is that you're seeing electrification within the broader context of energy efficiency. Mm. It, it's not the mm. other way around, so to speak. Because some, some people, I suppose, talk about, you know, the greatest efficiency is electrification. Just do the electrification. But what, what you're saying is that if you actually listen to people's stories, that it's
1: a, it's a bit more complicated than that. Well yes it is but it's also about for example in our homes at least half of the energy we use is usually on heating and it can be up to 80 percent so if you can change from using gas for that to electricity you've reduced your your gas use then say by 80 percent and If you're comparing a gas cooktop with an induction cooktop, the amount of gas you're actually using for that cooktop is very small. So it's not that I don't support completely getting off gas. I think that's the goal for everybody. But it's about budget. If it's going to cost you $5,000 to upgrade your gas cooktop and combined stove, you know, oven, and you don't have the budget for it. I don't want people to feel like they are evil people because they're still using a little bit of gas. As, as long as the goal is to get off, I think it's really important to think about how to reduce it the most. I suppose it's a little bit like zero waste. We can all aim to have zero waste households, mm. but if you can reduce your waste by 90%, you're actually doing a really good thing. And you don't need to feel bad that you still have 10% waste because it's a process. And do you give people
0: say a, a, or suggest to people a, a period of time over which that they can undergo this transition and this process?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I pretty much always suggest swapping over that heating first because it's such a high use of our annual energy. Then with other things, the hot water systems, I mean, generally they last about 15 years. So if somebody has one that's 10 plus years, they may well just want to go ahead and change it. Um, But if it's brand new, then they might get better benefit from doing other things uh, to reduce energy use in their homes and still doing it, but there's not such an urgency. And then, With the uh, hot plate, often that's the last thing people change and I generally say, look, once you get to the point where your heating and your hot water is electric, then that's a time to um, change over your hot plate because uh, that will save you paying the dollar a day daily service charge. So it's it's a financial motivation then as well Mm. as turning off gas.
0: So all of that is. this is very much, you know, balance, balancing the dollars and balancing the environment and balancing your own mm. individual needs, isn't it?
1: It is. I, I really think it's a process and everyone has a different capacity. There's all sorts of factors, like so many people say, look, uh, you know, my partner loves cooking and they really like the gas hot plate. It doesn't mean they won't eventually change to induction, mm. but People need time as well to um, maybe go to a friend's place and see it being used. And, you know, I, I I suppose I really believe that it is a journey and we have a goal, but people need to feel that they can take the most important steps in an achievable way without getting too stressed about that moment of I mean, it's a lovely moment when you abolish your gas meter and <laughs> it gets taken away. It's exciting. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic. But I also want it to be achievable and work for people. So uh, what do
0: people find the the most bamboozling about energy upgrades
1: and electrification? Uh, there's a few things. One is that a lot of the things that are marketed heavily are things that are high cost and a really good example is double glazed windows. Everyone has heard about them and the marketing would have you believe that installing double glazed windows throughout your home is the single most important thing you can do. And other things that, you know, such as solar power, um, um, buying an EV, there's a bunch of things people associate with having an energy efficient house. That's because they're not aware of all the things that are cheap and not very interesting to try and market. There's no <laughs> money in it. <laughs> I think people are bamboozled because they feel like they need to have a really big budget in order to do anything. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about my job is that I can, I can pretty much tailor suggestions to any budget. Say so if somebody was renting or um, in a share house, didn't have any budget, there are still plenty of things they can do that are very low cost. So some of those more costly upgrades
0: they're the they're the electrical upgrades aren't they yeah. Um, yeah. so how, how important do you think to energy efficiency is electrification
1: Oh I do think it's very important because uh, the new technology heat pump technology in particular is just such an efficient form of technology all of our, uh, our traditional forms of heating are direct forms of heating so you're either burning wood or gas or you're Mm. directly using electricity from the power point to heat an element to create heat for example so they all directly create heat from the energy they use whereas heat pump technology takes that unit of energy and uses it instead to um, power a fan in a condenser unit outside which enables that condenser with its refrigerant gases to pick to pick up all of the available heat in the air and condense it into a form that can then be moved inside and provided to us as heat energy. And so a modern uh, heat pump air conditioner, reverse cycle air conditioner, can use one kilowatt of electricity and give us four or five kilowatts of heat. So the the opportunity to upgrade from, say, a gas-ducted heating system to a reverse cycle um, air conditioner, and even better if it's individual ones, you're, you know, five times more efficient in how you're using energy. So it's very important.
0: Lucinda, what, what about some of the, you know, very common responses that people make to um, reverse cycle air conditioning that they're not as comfortable with the type of heating and uh, that uh, mm. the air conditioners provide compared to instantaneous gas heating. A lot of people are very reluctant to to change over because of that because they don't feel as comfortable. Mm.
1: Yeah, a lot of people do really like the feeling of the heat coming out of their floor ducts, you know, from the gas heating. And a common thing that people say about reverse cycle air conditioners is that they don't like that they feel blowy. Mm. There's a a few things around this. One is that I try and explain that the modern air conditioners are generally inverter models and it means that they can very gradually power on and off depending on what the temperature in the room is. So you'll find that a new air conditioner is, in my experience, is not blowy. If it's a non-inverter model, which is any of the older ones, then it's it's just on, bam, and it's off. And there's nothing in between. Whereas the new ones cycle slowly on and slowly off so that you barely know they're doing anything. So what I'll suggest is if they're a bit dubious about having a air conditioner on the wall, try and find a friend who has a new model and head over there and see what it's like because I think it's they're often very different to what people might have grown up with Um, the other thing is that your building shell has a really big impact on how your appliances work And, and this goes for ducted heating or reverse cycle air conditioners if your building shell is leaking heat out of it either through drafts or just through very inefficient thermal windows or lack of insulation whatever your heating is it's going to be working flat out to try and keep enough heat in that room to stay at temperature and that goes Mm. for a reverse cycle air conditioner too it's going to it's going to keep blowing and working because it's working so hard to keep that heat level up Mm. the moment you start improving your building shell you'll notice that your heating will just slow down Um, because you'll get to temperature in a shorter time and then it will go, oh, okay, we're there. Um, Let's just dial back, see what happens. When the temperature goes down, it will just slowly go on a bit to top it up and then off again. So improving your building shell, even if it's in your one main living zone, has a massive impact on what that heating and cooling can feel like.
0: It's so interesting that it, all these new electrical goods, it's the in, new air conditioners, it's the induction stoves, it's the electric vehicles, when you try them yourself or you, mm. your friend or your neighbour <laughs> has one,
1: that's that's when the switch happens, mm. I reckon. It is. And that's normal, I think, for people. We need to feel it and experience it to really know that okay that might be an option i think that's why so many clean energy groups of local volunteer groups when they attend expos they do induction cooking demos because so few people have experienced it they just want to show this is what it's like this is how responsive it is
0: Mm. So just overall, how detailed do you find people's knowledge about energy upgrades and electrification? Are assessments being more done by people who have some knowledge? Because I I would guess that you'd have to have some incentive to, to get an energy assessor
1: across the door. It's a bit of a mix, but I'd say a lot have fairly poor understanding of energy efficiency and electrification. Mm. I think a lot of people have the sense that they need to do something, either because their home is uncomfortable or because their bills are, they're finding them unacceptably high. So they know something has to happen and they'll often say, look, I know I need to do this and this and this, but I just, I have no idea where to start. I don't know what's, actually appropriate for my house and um, what's going to give me the biggest benefit. And so a, a lot of them are starting at a fairly low understanding and, and that's then what I can do is talk them through their own particular house and what the priorities would be in, in order of most importance.
0: You're listening to the Switched On Australia podcast and I'm talking to Lucinda Flynn, an energy efficiency assessor working in Melbourne. As Lucinda explains, energy efficiency assessors are employed in different capacities.
1: There's some scorecard assessors such as myself who are completely independent, which means that we're not working for any company that does any upgrades. So, that means we're not motivated at all by trying to sell you anything. If I go into your house and suggest certain things, it's purely because that's what I think is best suited to your house, not because I'm trying to yes. you know get you to buy something. There's other assessors that do work for companies that sell things. And I, I don't mean to say that that's a bad thing because <clears throat> Often it is a bit of a Mm. barrier to people to know where to then go. Um, So it can be useful to have an assessor that can also supply things. I should say that somebody like me who's independent, we can certainly refer people to companies and products and services and trades that can help. So it's not that we just say, do this and then leave you in the lurch. Either way, an assessor should be able to help you take the next step by pointing out what to do and who to contact.
0: Because it is one of the, the big stumbling blocks for a lot of people. I mean, the, the, the number of products and what they all do mm. and comparing all the products, it's absolutely overwhelming and bamboozling. Mm. What's your advice when people get to that stage? What should they do? Because this is where a lot of people balk.
1: It is, and I see that a lot, that people... Think well. I need to do something to my house, and they start investigating, and they just get so overwhelmed that they don't know where to start. And I really think that is the role of a home energy efficiency assessor. You might have the same house, but if there are different people living there, the the suggestions you might have could be completely different. Um, for example, mm. a, a three bedroom house that has you know, an elderly couple living there who only really occupy two spaces versus a three-bedroom house that has three kids under the age of five and, you know, every room is just constantly in use all day versus someone with teenagers or people that are about to potentially move out of house in the next couple of years. Your suggestions to that person would be different for all three because, There's no such thing as everyone should do this or this. It's about, well, in your situation, this could be a good way to approach it for best, you know, financial payback for you, but also to make the house work in the way that you want it.
0: Absolutely. One of the things that is often talked about these days are what people are calling one-stop shops for Mm -hmm. electrification and energy upgrades. And I can see a lot of value in them insofar as they take people from information stage to the actual delivery of the the upgrades and quality assurance and assist people with finding grants and funding and finance, etc. What What's your view of the the,
1: the one-stop shop idea? Um, I think a one-stop shop could be really good for some people, but I suppose just personally speaking, I always feel that it could be a little restrictive because whatever products they use is the limit of what they use, mm. which it might suit some people to just have to just have someone say, okay, this is, we think you should get a heat pump and this is the one you should get. And you know, that, that would be really reassuring for some people to not have to make those decisions. But mm. the other option is to get someone who can still support you every step of the way and point you to the right people to speak to and to organise things with. But it just gives you that little bit more flexibility to get a few quotes. And maybe choose someone who is, you know, a local installer or has been recommended by your clean energy group or something like that.
0: I, I interviewed the head of the Sustainable Energy Authority in Ireland recently. And uh, one, of, yeah. one of the things that they have done is to ensure that everybody can actually get an energy assessment if they want one. Yeah. That obviously across a country, you know, with a few million people, that's a massive and fantastic resource for people it is. because that's the start. That's the starting block for where they're now going, which is a, putting a hell of a lot of money into actually helping people do the upgrades, not just do the assessments. Would you like to see something like that happen
1: here? Absolutely, absolutely. I think. It will have such an impact on our energy use, but also on people's comfort, on their ability to make good choices about what they spend their money on. Um, I think an energy assessment being available to everyone is just such a critical part of helping people make that journey in the least stressful way, mm-hmm. because it, it, is very, it can be very bamboozling. You know, You might want to do something with your house, but where do you start? How do you know how it relates to your house, and an energy assessment in that sense can is is the key
0: do you think the 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 government governments i should say should have a role with this in terms of uh, you know funding um, energy assessments
1: yeah I do and I do I think that we will eventually have mandatory disclosure, which is when you have to have an energy assessment to sell or rent a house. Mm. Um, and there's there's been discussions about it for a long time, but i I believe that it's going to happen in the next couple of years. I think that if government underestimates the opportunities that offering that sort of service could give, it's such a comparatively easy thing to put money into that would enable people to often make changes that they can afford themselves or can even do themselves. Helping people understand their their own homes is absolutely the first step
0: and and what about minimum standards say for for rental homes actually what about minimum standards for for all homes do you think yeah. as well as mandatory disclosure when you sell or you rent how do you think minimum standards for energy efficiency will assist
1: at the moment we have if for new builds and significant renovations we have a 6 star minimum natas rating and I think that's a pretty poor bar. I know that it's due to go to seven, but really we could be making houses, building houses that rarely require heating or cooling if we built them into a much better standard. And surely that would be a better goal
0: so you're you're talking about what's known as the Nathurst Assessments, the nationwide yes. House Energy Rating Scheme, which is only at this stage for 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 new builds. So yes. y- y- just explain that rating system, say from the scorecard system.
1: Mm. Yeah, there are two different ratings, and the Nathurst rating is has has always been for new builds or very significant renovations. And it's about how the home is constructed, the building shell, and the rating out of 10 is an indication of how many megajoules per square metre that new build home would require to, to be comfortable. In comparison, Oh, and the other thing is it's a mandatory rating. So if you're Mm -hmm. doing a new build or a big renovation, you must get one of those. In comparison, the scorecard was developed for existing homes and it's not mandatory at this point, although we hope it will become. Whereas NATAs is done or the um, off-plan ratings are done um, off a plan because often the houses aren't built. They're done by computer based on drawings. The scorecard is done in-home, in an existing home and the way that it's in use. So because we're there, we can get a much better idea of how the home is actually built, which is not always what the plans say, and also um, any additional things that that those people might have Mm. introduced, such as window coverings and floor coverings. And shading, they're all good examples of things that people introduce after they move in. And it also looks at the main fixed appliances that are in use. So scorecard is a cost rating for the house and it looks at more than the building shell. It also looks at the fixed appliances. And depending on what postcode we put in and the size of the house, it can calculate what the cost of gas or electricity or wood is there and how those appliances are likely to use it, how efficiently and then work out what the expected annual cost would be to run a home.
0: Yes, absolutely. Lucinda Flynn, thank you so much for joining the Switched On podcast today.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. It was a real pleasure to be here.
0: And Lucinda Flynn is an energy efficiency assessor at Going Green Solutions in Melbourne. You can find her on the Going Green Solutions website and I'll put a link to it on the Switched On website. That's it for this week. Don't forget to check out some of our previous Switched On episodes. We've got heaps of great interviews on the ins and outs and the challenges and opportunities of electrification. Financing induction stoves, heat pumps, trackless trams, getting off gas, one-stop shops, there's lots there. I'm Anne Delaney and I'll see you next time. Meanwhile... Keep electrifying.